Hello and welcome to the Real Exes of Portland podcast, coming to you from Portland, Oregon. I'm Heather. I'm Sophie. And I'm Amy. And we are real women, real friends, with real stories. That are super juicy. And I might add, real boobs. (laughs) And we would love for you to follow us on Instagram at The Real Exes Portland. And we will be hanging out with you guys every Wednesday afternoon. And you know what Wednesday is? Wine Wine Wednesday. Wednesday. Cheers. Cheers. Well, hello and good afternoon, all you beautiful people out there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming back and listening to us crazy ladies. Um, Today, we have a special guest star. And her name is Nikkel, and we are going to introduce her more later, but I wanted everyone to know off the top that we have a guest here. But before we dig into the meat of the matter, uh, first of all, I'm looking at the food on my plate, and I have a half-eaten sausage and some uh, homemade cranberry orange nut bread that I made this morning. I was a little disappointed. Yeah. Disappointed. Uh, it wasn't one of your muffs. But oh, shit. I know. You know, I thought about putting them. <laughs> I pinched a loaf. <laughs> it was heavy, too. It was heavy. Yeah. It was good. It was, good. It was moist. Nice it, was, it was really moist, yeah. But no, I, I thought about putting it in the muffin tin, and I was like, I don't know how these <laughs> are going to turn out. out. Really well. Thank you so it much. So, so good. yes, we're eating it with real butter, and it's so yummy. Um, but shortly before we came on here to chat, uh, behind the scenes, we were talking about martinis and double martinis and dirty martinis and extra dirty <laughs> martinis. And so I'm like, we have to tell everyone about this because, um, yeah, I always feel weird ordering. A, and a martini and then ask for it extra dirty. I always have to get, give a little I giggle. I them too fast. Uh, well, That's there's not the much there. I mean, it's a, t- a small glass. and It's like, yeah, I think you're supposed to sip. Yeah, you are. I'm like, You don't like you haven't had your water intake for the day. I'm thirsty. I always tell people I want a side of martini with my olives. That's how I end up getting the amount of olives I want in my glass. I had... Whiskey, like a shot of whiskey with a pickle a pickleback. Back. Yes, mm-hmm. and I had that for the first time. I didn't know it was a thing. I was at some a bar in downtown of Portland with a pickleback, with a sh- like a little glass of pickle, pickle juice. juice. You can do it with any kind of shot, and then you don't get that like weird burn afterwards. So Is that why shot, you do it? And then you take the oh, shot and it was spicy juice. pickle yeah. juice. They have sometimes have spicy. Yeah, also. so it's it's a pretty common thing for people to do with like tequila shots. Oh. And the first time I had a pickleback was at somebody's wedding, and I was ah. like. Why is there a big jar of pickle juice? <laughs> what does this mean? On the yeah. catering table. Right. And I was thoroughly impressed. So. Yeah, it's good. I well, like it. It's really p- good. Pickle martinis are, it was awesome. I, I was on, I went to a, a restaurant. Don't ask me what restaurant. It okay. was in the dark when I went there, so I don't remember. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was down a dark alley. Dark I think it was back on alley. Very exclusive place. Yeah. I think it was on Milwaukee. <laughs> oh. Right in the north. Northeast, that, uh, southeast, Mil- Milwaukee, southeast, okay, Portland. Southeast. Anyway, somewhere over there. Somewhere over okay. there. Somewhere so on how, the other side of the river. On the <laughs> other side of the tracks. <laughs> did they put a pickle in the pickle martini? Yeah, tell us. I think they did. I don't remember, but I remember thinking it was very delicious. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was a good night. Yeah, <laughs> she doesn't remember. Yeah, that's all. She, she probably <laughs> consumed more than one right. or two. I was just going to say. Well, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was with uh, my girlfriend's um that I met when I moved, first moved here to Portland, and they are um, dental, like one's a dental hygienist, one oh, yeah. is, oh, yeah. yeah, Anna and, mm-hmm. and We Masha. met those ladies. Yeah, you met yeah. those ladies and Masha, and, um, and Masha's sister, who's also a dentist. So, I mean, they're... And their humor is very funny. And Masha is, like, hilarious. So if anybody was listening next to our table, <laughs> oh, they got an earful. Uh, got a really good show. They got a really good show. And we and I was, like, keeled over a lot. Like, it was one of the, like, that, it was just a really fun night. It was a couple of years ago over Christmas. All right. Well, I, I, I sense an outing for all of us. We're going to find out yeah. the pickle, pickle martini. Pickle martini. Okay, we have to settle it, though. Yep. Is it vodka or gin mm. martini? Oh, vodka. I can't vodka. do gin. 
I usually, I like gin, but yeah. I do usually order my martini with vodka. I am a gin martini. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll have to try it. Yeah. yeah. you got to get a London dry. Okay. So don't oh. do it with like Hendrix or Tanqueray or anything. Okay. you got to get like Beefeater's gin, something that's, oh. yeah. Oh, that's that makes oh. for a very <laughs> good okay. martini. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Good to know. Check, check. Get my pickles. Yeah. And I also, I mean, for anybody listening, you all mm-hmm. probably know this, but I all the years that I've been drinking martinis, I never knew that it was a double in a single okay. mm-hmm. yeah. until just recently, like I think oh, you this would, week. It's well worth getting one because yeah. you have two for the price exactly. of that's one sometimes. So when I now that drinks are like seventeen dollars, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So <laughs> when I consumed two the other day. I was thinking, oh, well, you know, uh, clearly my head and wine doesn't match very well. So I thought, oh, I'll just have a journey martini. And then I'll have another one <laughs> after I've now had four shots oh, on a right. DVI. <laughs> but I didn't have a... a so I didn't it have the a, wine. The wine makes you... I think it's the mm-hmm, wine. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not... I'm not going to be drinking a whole lot going forward anyway, just here and there. But it was nice to know that I could occasionally mm-hmm. enjoy, enjoy a beverage without and it. not having a horrible migraine afterwards mm-hmm. so. well and the lack of sugar in a martini is right also helpful that's, for that. true. So, true. that's yeah. one thing i've noticed i finally just not that long ago realized that like i had oh it was on halloween all of our neighbors we have a block party and we were doing shots of tequila and mm. i'm like oh my god i was doing shots of tequila all night and but it was it was very good yeah. also tequila it wasn't yeah. bottom yeah. of the barrel yeah. and the next day i felt totally fine but mm. i've been known to actually get very sick and vomit from mm-hmm. drinking um margaritas mm-hmm. and so it's gotta be the, the margarita mix yeah. Yeah. that's the doing sugar. it mm-hmm. yeah yeah so well, with wine you also have the sulfites and the tannins yeah. that can contribute to headaches as well plus wine turns into sugar Earth. in our bodies yeah. so it's, oh my God. Yeah. it's kind of a triple whammy with wine i've had yeah yeah it's mm-hmm. a wonder i'm still drinking wine i know but it's delicious i know i just <laughs> i know that. that's just it speaking like of <laughs> that oh my god let's everyone it's Wine Wednesday. Wednesday. Cheers. <laughs> Drink. I was going to say one more thing. So <clears throat> I have a Starbucks coffee mug here. Mm-hmm. And the hilarious thing is, no, I did not. It's a holiday cup. And no, I did not pick this up on the way here. And it's actually not. It's plastic. It's oh, reusable. It's a reusable one. And mm-hmm. I bet, well, Sophie knows because I told her, but I bet generally nobody would ever guess what I am drinking. because Vodka. Star- <laughs> 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 well, and it's not clear. You can't see through. But um, And Starbucks does not serve what I have in this cup. And no, it is not an adult beverage. But it's actually hot water with um, apple cider vinegar. Ooh. Oh, yeah. It's um, the purpose. Yeah, my dietitian recommended <laughs> that I, because I'm having the a digestive. lot of get, gut yeah. problems. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I've been doing it for about three weeks. I'm supposed to drink it. I normally have it in just like a ceramic coffee mug yeah. first thing when I get up mm-hmm. before anything else. But today I was dead. So I had to have my coffee first while I was making the bread. And so I just made it and brought it with me. Oh, yeah. So if you smell anything weird, because it's really potent. But I have since I have the lid on, maybe it's not too nope, bad. No, can't smell it. So speaking of apple cider mm-hmm. vinegar, mm-hmm. I do uh, apple cider vinegar oh. hair treatment, oh. and I have been doing this off and on for years. Oh, but I, I did mine last night, and yeah. so I I don't always uh, <laughs> she's petting. <laughs> I don't always <laughs> uh, uh, dry my hair. So mm-hmm. of course I had just done the treatment, and my poor husband, oh, he's not. like aren't you going to dry your hair? And I was like, no. Oh, the and, smell. And uh, yeah, we sleep with our window open, mm. but, uh, but at some point in time in the night, I did feel the breeze and I'm sure there was a waft of vinegar, except for he's kind of like an old dude and he can fall asleep anywhere, mm-hmm. anytime. So he, I mean, he fell asleep right oh. away, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of like an old dude, too. I can fall asleep in anywhere. I used to be, <laughs> oh, but I not love it, too, anymore. in a chair, straight up. Yeah. Jealous. Yeah. So I don't yeah. snore yet, but, you know. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's oh, good. That's yeah. probably that's coming okay. someday. <laughs> you know, I have a CPAP, so I have my oh, Darth Vader. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kiss me. It's good for role playing. <laughs> <laughs> he could be my Princess Leia. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh my god, I had to have a sip of wine on that one. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
it's like it's like when you start dating someone, you go, okay, I snore. Or you can put up with my CPAP. Yeah. Right. Which one? <laughs> what is the lesser of the two evils, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, so yeah, it's been fun. It's a beautiful sunny day, and we're all here together with our beautiful, lovely um, Nikhil that has graced us to be on our podcast today. Amy, do a more formal introduction. Take it away. I feel like we've been talking for quite some time. I don't even know how long it's been, but I don't know, maybe a couple months. Like, and maybe even longer. longer. I feel like you and I have been connected for maybe seven-ish months. Whoa! Mm-hmm. And we met through, wasn't the uh, Hive PDX? The Hive. There yeah, was, the um, Hive. Yeah, there was a person asking for advice oh. about a relationship. Oh, and you yes. seem to like oh, some of the advice yes. I gave. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I see somebody standing up for information about toxic relationships, abusive relationships. I want to connect with them because there are not enough people bringing that to light. There's mm-hmm. not enough people talking about it. And there, there really needs to be this, we really need, in my opinion, we really need to bring it to light so women, but also men, um, children do not feel alone. They feel like they have support. And uh, Nikkel is amazing with her advice. She's very real and raw. She speaks about how she's more newly out of a relationship um, of this kind. And she's willing to humble herself and share like all of her hardship and her healing processes and her information and I think that's key and so for me personally I'm always like follow I'm always listening to whatever she has to say one because there's something in common but two when you get four years five years now eight years out of your toxic relationship it's sometimes hard to remember what it was like leaving before. But like for me, I still want to give people the love and support. Mm-hmm. And when you are newly out of that situation, you remember it because you feel mm-hmm. it. I, for me, I've had some time and some grace and lots of healing. And now I have, uh, you know, my new husband. And so when you have a new partner in your life that is kind and gentle and respects you and loves you, they start to wash away some of mm-hmm. the old pain. And so I like Nikkel's perspective because it, it really is real. And I just like the c- collaborative mm-hmm. conversation that we've had because you also remind me of, of some things I have forgotten just in my own mm-hmm. healing. And I'm okay with that. I don't feel bad about that. But I also want to, I want to feel there and support women and children and men who are going through these kinds of relationships. So I feel like the bond was pretty strong with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, before we got on here, we were briefly talking about um, just how hard it is to leave an abusive relationship because of how isolated you become. Mm-hmm. And um, really the only sounding board you typically have in your life when you're in an abusive relationship is your abuser. And that is the person who defines your value and defines your abilities and um, defines your friendships, who is allowed to be your family, who's not allowed to be your family. Um, I actually probably always knew I was in an abusive relationship. Um, the first time that I was physically assaulted by my, um, former partner, uh, he kicked a door in my face and knocked me out cold when I was 17 years old. Um, and he was very sorry and it was an accident, even though he was kicking the door in after he'd chased me and threatened me, but somehow it was an accident that Mm -hmm. he kicked the door in and he didn't realize I was going to be on the other end of it when he kicked it in. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, you excuses. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I, you know, I was 17, I was a vulnerable young woman. Um, my parents had went through a volatile divorce and they were working very hard to raise four children and just did not have a lot of oversight in my life. Um, and 
I was madly in love. Um, and I was, I easily looked that over. And in the beginning it was like things like that happened so far apart from each other. Mm -hmm. And in my mind at 17 years old, it was like, if it's not physical violence, it's not domestic violence. Mm -hmm. What I didn't realize is that I was actually being domestically abused every single day through emotional and psychological violence. Mm -hmm. Um, my ex loved to say I've never hit a woman because he's never balled up his fist and punched me or any woman for that matter, or open handed slapped me or any woman for that matter. Um, and so I would live in that reality of like, Oh, he's never hit me, but he would grab me by my feet and drag me out of bed in the middle of the night from a deep sleep. Oh my God. He would drag me around the house by my hair. Um, he would dump water on me in public places to embarrass me. And so, but in my head, I also would tell myself, you aren't a victim of domestic violence because he's never hit you. Mm. And he defined everything I believed about the world. So we connected through social mm. media, which is such an important thing for me because, um, when I got on social media, I learned what domestic violence was by watching other survivors who had went before me. And I saw so many women living where I live now, or where you live now, uh, out, free, happy, healed. And those women told me the truth about what was happening in my life through their reels or their memes or just the stories that they would share where they um, gave dialogue about it. And around the time I started to realize what was happening to me, I thought, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to change him. I'm going to put these boundaries out there. And we've been married for over 20 years and I'm his high school sweetheart. And so he'll do anything to make sure he gets his stuff together to keep me. But what instead happened is he recognized that social media was making me a stronger person. Mm -hmm. And he tried to control my access to people through social media too by forcing me to give him my passwords. Um, he got to decide who was my friend on social media, all kinds of different things. And once again, I got back into this funnel of my only exposure was him. But I'd already been awakened mm -hmm. and I wanted out. And I listened to the way other people got out. And it's interesting because it's actually um, December 12th, two years ago was the first time I met with my divorce attorney. Um, and the divorce was actually filed by uh, my ex in May of 2022, but um, I had planned my escape mm -hmm. uh, before I actually left. And um, I was only able to do that on the backs of women that told me the truth about what happened in their life. And I think one of the hardest things about being, and excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm monopolizing this time, but no, this is your time. No. My time. Thank you. All the time, the whole time. Yeah. Yes, um, go. But I think that one of the things that was really, really helpful for me when you talk about me living authentically out loud, honest, being raw about it, um, there's something called reactive abuse that often occurs in domestic violence uh, relationships. And reactive abuse is when someone persistently abuses you for an extensive amount of time, deprives you of sleep, um, you know, doesn't let you eat, doesn't let you rest, isolates you, does all kinds of different things over a certain period of time, and then you explode. And in the end of my relationship, there were a lot of times that I was um, physically abused and deprived of sleep and, and went through quite a bit of stuff for two, three, four days on end until I finally would lose my mind and I would start screaming just the most wild obscenities at um, my abuser. And he would film me. And I, and then he told me he would use it against me to have my nursing license taken away or to get my child taken from me or whatever. And I was terrified of that. So I was then being blackmailed with my integrity oh my and my ethics. Um, so there was another level of power and coercive control in that aspect. But I was also terribly ashamed because who I am as a person is not a human being that screams at other people, is not a human being that says like the CU word mm -hmm. or hate or, you know, I want you to die. Those are things that I don't like. They're just not part of my dip disposition, my general mm -hmm. everyday vocabulary. And so I would be abused and coerced into reactive abuse and then recorded. And um, I, I didn't want the people I love to see me that way or my patients. You know, I have a panel of 2,600 patients in the Portland metropolitan area and I own a business and I was like, this is going to destroy my business, mm -hmm. whatever. So um, I am not just brutally honest about the things that happened to me, but I'm brutally honest about the things that I did. While I was in my marriage that I was that I'm ashamed of 
um, I admit all the ways that not, I did not contribute to my abuse. You cannot contribute to your abuse. And a lot of women will say, oh, I contributed to my abuse. No, you did not. Mm -hmm. But I do admit all the ways that I needed to emotionally heal or grow or accept the darknesses in my closet in order to actually become the kind of person that would not be um, subjected to abuse or that would not be vulnerable to it. And sometimes for a little while, when you leave an abusive relationship and you're trying to reduce that vulnerability, you almost go too far on the other end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like your, your boundaries become Mm -hmm. almost, um, they're, they become excessive and kind of rude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember I've, I said things to people when I first left that it was like, if you ever this, then that's that. And, um, I went from being a person who had no boundaries. I mean, like literally I was just like a pool of water. Anytime somebody came along with something, I was like, we can take it in, you know, um, to a person who literally was like ready to just cut people out of my life. Uh, the one boundary I was very, very firm on is that if someone sided with my abuser, they did not get to be in my life. So if they, um, you know, if they wanted to be neutral to me, that was siding with my abuser mm-hmm. because I couldn't have, I couldn't let him have access to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the one boundary that I was firm on that I don't think was um, excessive or rude. No, that was protecting. Yeah. That yeah. was very, very protective. And so you do also have to find that balance of like where, where is the space that um, genuinely like you, you cannot compromise. And then you have to find where you can soften over time so that you can be that lovable person that you always were or wanted to be. And that is through counseling. Um, and, and there is just really no way to get there on your own when you've experienced so many things. And, um, yeah, you need a professional to guide you. And I have been in consistent counseling, um, since before I left, uh, my abuser. Um, he was not aware of that, but I was, I was counseled all the way through on how to safely get out. Um, and it's been really great to have a counselor who's walked with me from before mm-hmm. I left mm-hmm. and gets to see me now. And the last time I met with him, he was just like all smiles, oh. <laughs> you know, he was just so stoked because you never get on the other side of it. I mean, PTSD is PTSD and there is always going to be a day that, something triggers you um yeah but you become more apt to cope with those triggers Mm -hmm. and they have less influence on your behavior and your emotional state and the recovery from them is so much better and I remember when I first left there was another um she I think she'd been out like six years but every time I would put something on my social media she would just the one simple comment she would say keep going Aww. and it's true you just keep going and right. you get there so I mean I could talk about this for a million years <laughs> <laughs> no that yeah. I mean so so you were with him for 20 years and mar- married I met him when I was 12 years old oh Jeez. very um, long time mm-hmm. and I started dating him um it was like mid-17 when we started dating uh we married when I was 20 and I left him when I was 36 years old. So we were married for 16 years together, approximately 20, 21 years. Um, but I'd known him more than half my life. I mean, I was, yeah. you know, 36 when I left. So I'd known him for 24 years um, when I left him. And it he was also kind of the only thing I'd ever known. He was my mm-hmm. only best friend and... Um, Amy, I said to you earlier about when you wake up to who they really are, how you spend your whole life going, well, he just has a mental illness and I need to insulate that mental illness and I need to protect him from his triggers because when he's triggered, I'm at risk because he takes out his mental health problems on me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you clean the house perfectly or you always make sure that you're never going to be outside after dark or you uh, pick the chair you know that he doesn't like to sit in so that you're never taking the chair that he wants. Um, When you replace the light bulbs, if he likes the yellow hue, 60 watt, you make sure you never stick an LED light bulb in the bathroom that he uses regularly because that could be enough to put you in a place where you are um, in in physical danger. Just small things like that. And so... Um, another thing I also said to you, Amy, was that 
I probably know my abuser better than he knows himself because mm-hmm. it was my job to pay attention to the way his hands moved, the way his eyes looked mm-hmm. around a room, um, whether or not he was breathing and, and giving me messages as to what I was doing wrong. You know, I had to, body language was very important for me to learn so that mm-hmm. I could navigate mm-hmm. keeping the peace. However, my abuser probably thinks he knows me, but he doesn't. He's actually never known me. He knows nothing about me because I lived my entire relationship with him in my head. And I was taught to never say anything displeasing. So when I would start to out my personality in our relationship, if it was personality traits he liked, I would amplify them. But if it was personality traits that he didn't like, I would push them deep Mm -hmm. inside and I would eliminate them from my outward expression. So they would just be things and thoughts that I had in my head um, because it wasn't safe for me to outwardly express things that truly bring me joy or happiness Um, because from my abuser's perspective, I should only experience joy and happiness based on the things that he tells me are joyful and happy. So just out of interest, his background, did he, do you you know from his family background, did he come from abuse? Yeah, so with his family... um, I'm not making excuses. No, 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 not at all. I don't believe that at all. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's a predisposition to uh, what we think, we would believe that there's a predisposition to what causes people to be domestic abusers. Um, And yes, my ex and I both came from very traumatic places. Um, my ex, I, I won't speak very specifically because I would prefer some anonymity Mm -hmm. for him. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I'm not trying to tell his story because he has experienced traumas that are absolutely valid. Um, nonetheless, his entire family is, is my family. Um, and they have all expressed that he has been quite violent and abusive himself since a very young age. Um, and he was diagnosed with a rage disorder early on. Um, he was in and out of the juvenile criminal system his whole childhood, which most people don't know because his records are sealed because they're juvenile. Uh, but he's engaged in very, very violent crimes and been arrested for them and convicted and, and put in, um, well, I don't know if juveniles get convicted, but you know, whatever happens in the juvenile court system, yeah. he's ended up in, in jails and boys' homes and things like that. Um, so when you ask that, yes, he was exposed to violence in his life in many different places, not only in his home, but also in boys' homes and also through the judicial system. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, uh, there is a, a, a gentleman, Dr. Lundy Bancroft, who is, in my opinion, like the, the holy grail of domestic violence researchers. And he actually, um, and I... I don't know exact, but I do recall his history is kind of that he developed a program for like basically batterers anonymous for men who were domestic violence abusers um, and somewhere that they could go post family court to basically learn how to not be an abuser. And he developed this whole program for the United States court systems. It was implemented. um, It was considered like basically the way to save domestic violence families and still keep fathers involved and protect women. And the goal of that program was for these men to go and learn why they abuse women and then learn how to stop abusing women. And over years of implementing this program, Lundy Bancroft finally said that it does not work. And he said that it does not work because what actually happens is these men get into these rooms together and they tell glory stories Mm -hmm. because they actually find a great deal of joy in abusing women. And so they tell glory stories under the guise of it being kind of like AA where you kind of like share your worst days, like the worst things you happen. But he said he could see and feel and palpate on these men that it was not them sharing their shame. It was them sharing their methods and he basically yeah yeah and so he said that what he was finding was that these men were teaching each other like oh if you're excuse my french bitch back talks Mm -hmm. this is a way you can take care of her without putting a bruise on her so you don't end up in here again and so he felt like the program was a failure but like with most things in the united states when they are implemented through a legislative body they just stay failure or not Mm -hmm. So this batterers anonymous situation where the courts can order these men to go to these programs still exists and it's still considered a fix all even though it actually never worked. But um, Lundy wrote a book called Why Does He Do That? Mm -hmm. 
And it was one you of the read most. read it, Amy? Yeah. yeah. Oh. One of the most powerful books I've ever read. And the reason why is because his, he was attempting to discover what predisposes men to abuse women physically, emotionally, psychologically, financially. I mean, there's so many forms of abuse. So what predisposes men to do that? And through his research, what he determined is nothing. Men who abuse women like to abuse women, and that's why they do it. And actually 70% of men who physically abuse women have lower than average scores on the ACEs scale. So the ACEs scale is adverse childhood events, and it is our measure for how much trauma you've experienced in your life. Mm -hmm. And so when you take this exam, you can come and say like, oh, I've experienced an abnormal amount of trauma, less than normal amount of trauma, average trauma, because you know we all get trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of a guide for how you would uh, proceed with, okay, so as a person, it's a guide for how you would proceed with therapy. So you would say like, oh, I probably need some trauma therapy if I'm well above average in the ACEs scores. But also it's a guide for like teachers, clinicians, things like that to consider how they respond to the people that are in their care. Um, because you have to be a little bit more delicate with people who have trauma. Um, you have to be very open in the way that you communicate. Like it's really important for me when people are coming up behind me that they say behind you. Because mm -hmm. if somebody's right on my shoulder when I realize they're there, it can almost like cripple me because I think, oh my God, is there someone here to kill me? Which is mm -hmm. such a wild thing to say, mm -hmm. you know, but that is just innately where my body goes. I, I jump to, it's him. He's mm -hmm. finally got me, you know? Um, and I have to work on that in, in therapy. But when you think about the fact that 70% of men who abuse women do not have higher than average scores mm -hmm in trauma it's absolutely wild and literally the last chapter sorry if i'm spoiling alert rid of the book but oh. the truth is the content is more important than that mm -hmm. uh, but the last chapter he just said men who abuse women abuse women because they like to and um although lundy uh dr bancroft did not uh, put this information in his book um i think a, a great area for future research would be um entitlement entitlement mm. So one of the things that I've recognized in most um, people who abuse others, children, animals, women, men, no. although it is very rare. No. I will, when I talk about abusers, I will always uh, define the masculine as the abuser mm -hmm. and the feminine as the victim uh, because that's the typical process. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and it's like when we, we have a group of male and female actors and actresses, if we're referring to them as one, we're mm -hmm. gonna say actors. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, what you'll find in my life. I'm not saying that men are not abused, but um, they're they're not in proportion to women. Mm -hmm. um, but so, I, my experience is that there is a high level of entitlement. And when you look back at mm -hmm. uh, my my abuser's history, his family will generally agree that even though they were impoverished and they had less than most people as a whole, he had more than everyone in the family as a whole because he would get upset and throw temper tantrums about what he didn't have. And the rest of the family was more people pleasery, more compliant, more ready to just go, I don't care if I have a new pair of Nikes. You can get me Nike, you can get me shoes from Payless Shoe Source, whereas he would not dare be seen in shoes mm -hmm. from Payless Shoe Source. Shoe source. Mm -hmm. So um, the entitlement had always been there in his life, and then it had also been placated. So mm -hmm. it's not just that he felt the entitlement, he was rewarded rewarded mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and so that's something that um i definitely would think if there was research would show up i i, I agree because i can see the correlation with you know because there's always going to be um disagreement i mean you're not the same person so no. when you're in a partnership with somebody if they're um you know you, you they don't get what they want they whine cry as they become an adult they yell scream and they see a they see a positive for them it's mm -hmm. a positive reaction like oh they did I got what, what i, I said i got what i wanted mm -hmm. um so it's a learned behavior mm -hmm. and i guess what you know if i'm kind of going where you're going going towards is that it, it gets to a line where they cross it with a different type of abuse and it might just be mm -hmm. something like they they frighten you rather yeah. than hit you or whatever but 
and they just see it progressing and then they they can't control it anymore or they because they want what they want Mm -hmm. yeah and this worked it's very and really and like i know she knows the numbers probably way more than me but one in three women in the world are abused Mm -hmm. it's one in four in oregon Wow, that's yeah. staggering. And oh one in gosh. eight for men. Yeah. And so yeah. so one yeah. of the oh. things that, so that even sounds pretty staggering too when you think mm-hmm. about one in eight. Yeah. So one of the things I do like to clarify is that when we talk about men and women both being victims of domestic violence, um, that domestic abuse actually, um, that is real. So when we talk about the one in eight abuse, real. However, when you delineate out, there's something called the power and control wheel. And on that, it talks about the types of abuse. Mm. And so it talks about physical abuse. It talks about financial abuse. It talks about emotional abuse. Um, There's so many. There's there's like eight things on it. And um, it's wild because some things I'm like, what, that's abuse? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the power and control wheel, that is the definition of domestic abuse. Of those one in eight men who are abused, they are typically victims of emotional, psychological, financial financial. abuse. They are not typically victims of physical violence. Mm The other aspect of that is, is that those men are not typically at risk for bodily injury or murder. Mm-hmm. So one in three women are abused. And of those women, if there is a weapon, a gun in the home, their risk for being murdered within five years is 500% higher. A woman who is abused by their abuser is more likely to experience bodily harm than a man is. And and I'm not like trying to say it's okay that men are abused. I'm just saying that when a woman is abused, it is not infrequent that she is robbed of the rest of her life. And when a man is abused, it is not infrequent that he gets out and he goes on and he has the rest of his life, having learned a lesson about what type of women not to get involved with. Mm-hmm. And it's also like... You know, I um, left my abuser in February of 2022. Um, he, I, at that time, I, I wanted to go to marriage counseling. I wanted to fix it, but this and that. It became pretty clear that that wasn't going anywhere. Him, him losing control over me was very, um, he didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So he um, filed divorce in May and uh, of 2022 and something I didn't know about the family court system is that whoever files whatever they put on paper is considered the truth until you get in front of a judge and prove otherwise Mm. and so in that time between filing and getting in front of the judge whoever was the person that filed dictates how often you get to see your child how much money you get whether or not you get to go in your house etc etc The courts were just coming off of the COVID times, so they were months and months and months behind. And my abuser put in his petition for divorce that basically I was a deadbeat mom that hadn't seen my daughter for more than an hour on Mondays for months and all these different things. And our court date was set three months away, which basically meant, and I mean, I had been living full time in the home with my daughter. I did all the, the grocery shopping. I did all the cooking. I took care of the cats. Even even after I left and moved out, I still went back twice a week to drop groceries and cook dinner and all the things, you know. Um, however, I had two options at that point. I could choose to wait three months and not see my child for three months. And in the time that would pass in that who knows what was being put into her head or whatever Mm -hmm. or I could negotiate and when I negotiated I negotiated that I had to drop my restraining order against a man who had um, severe gun violence in in our lives Um, and dropping my restraining order meant that he would get his guns back which Mm -hmm. was terrifying Um, and I had to agree to a no contact order, which was great for me. However, in that no contact order was also a gag order where I was not allowed to speak about anything that was happening to me. Um, yeah. And then. My jaw is like. Yeah. You yeah. can speak to who? Like the police or you can speak to anybody? anybody. I couldn't speak to my friends about it. I couldn't speak on social media. No, I could speak to my psychologist about it. Okay. But I could not speak in anywhere, any way that someone could possibly identify that he might be the person I'm talking about. Mm. Um, And so I was effectively told that you 
um, if you would ever want to see your child, <laughs> you will shut up. And this is standard. Mm-hmm. This is standard of the family court system. Um, and, and there are lawyers out there who are just as abusive as human beings as the domestic abusers. Mm-hmm. And my ex found, he found a lawyer. I mean, his first lawyer actually fired him for his behavior, but he mm-hmm. did find a subsequent lawyer who essentially is him on steroids with an education. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And, um, but, you know, my, my ex will claim that I abused him, uh, 6'3", 249 pounds, lifts weights three times a day. And once again, I'm not saying that men can't be abused. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am saying the potential that me, 5'4", 115 pounds, could injure the brick house that I was married to <laughs> was pretty low. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and his potential to injure me was quite high. I mean, I'd experienced it. So... Um, So that was how I had to initially start navigating the family court system. Well, then what happens is when you finally get in front of the court, they want to know if he's so scary and if he's so dangerous, then why'd you drop your restraining order? (laughs) What? You know, so it's just constant victim shaming. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have to say like, well, because I wanted to see my kid and my innate instincts as a mother are higher than my innate instincts to survive. Nonetheless, still, before I negotiated that, I'd went six weeks without seeing my child. And in that time, I became a victim of what's called CAMS, Child and Mother Sabotage. Um, so I'm estranged from my, my child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't speak too deeply on that because that's... Personal. It's, well, and it's for me, I, will speak, I would speak privately to my friends about it um, and to other survivors about it. My child is going to grow up someday, mm-hmm. and I don't want her to look back and listen to podcasts mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feel like I've told an inaccurate story mm-hmm. about what happened to her. Mm-hmm. She, at this point in her life, um, has an inaccurate belief of what history was mm-hmm. like, which is very sad. Um, and But also, me sharing that briefly mm-hmm. has connected me with other women who are also estranged from their children in very similar circumstances as mine. And I realize not only am I not alone, um, but we can come together and do something to make change. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I don't know if I have the bandwidth <laughs> <laughs> to make political change mm. at this point because I'm still trying to get my feet underneath me. I'm still trying to figure yeah, out. You're, it's, you're still yeah, fresh under yeah. this. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, we've been eight years, mm-hmm. you know, six yeah. years away from our divorces. And yeah, you're. I mean, and technically, I was not legally divorced until October 27th of this year. So oh, wow. and I and my last court hearing was on Friday so far. I mean, it's not the last of all last, but I mean, I'm still not I'm legally divorced, but I'm still not done with this legal rigmarole. And I I don't expect I will be until my child is 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily have the bandwidth to be writing legislation or anything mm-hmm. of that nature, but I have. I have had the opportunity to go to some charitable luncheons and to, to meet Congress people and Congress women and men um, and, and put myself in a position that when I do have that bandwidth, um, I'll maybe be able to make change on the systemic I level. I could totally see you being a voice. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. This excites me, actually. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yes. And I, you know what I think is beneficial is that um, I am well-educated. I am a business owner. I'm a very capable person. Um it's very apparent. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and that Kudos. Is, thank you. Yes. That is part of the trauma, yes. too. Like the, the always trying to prove you're good enough. Mm-hmm. And so the other aspect of it, when I first left, part of proving I was good enough was that I was going to be that agent for change. I, mm-hmm. I was like immediately gung ho. We're like, give me a picket sign. I'm going to head down in front of every single courthouse that's hearing a child custody hearing and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, part of my protest is rest mm-hmm. and recovery. Yeah. yeah. Um, but someday... That'll be part of it. And Mm -hmm. recently, there are 10 states in the United States that have now passed laws against coercive control as domestic abuse. Um, So coercive control is actually the most insidious form of domestic abuse because it uses all eight of the tactics on the power and control wheel to systemically um, deprive a person of their own identity and essentially turns those people into Stepford wives or robots Mm -hmm. um, in a a very slow and insidious pattern that by the time the victim has become lost 
they don't even know what's happening to them anymore. And oftentimes they do truly believe that everything that happens is their fault, um, mm-hmm. that they can do better, that if they just made sure that there wasn't that speck of dirt on the floor when that person came home, then they wouldn't have to get that, that black eye. Mm-hmm. Um, and they truly believe it. So it's a form of um, Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it's also a form of torture. Coercive control is a form of torture. And um, it was not considered illegal or violence against women until about two years ago. And But one of the states is not ours. The one of no. the... No. no, Oregon does not consider um, coercive control okay. a crime yet, yeah. yet. Yeah. But they will because um, we have pioneers like Tina Swinton, uh, who wrote the book One Mom's Battle, and um, after hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that she put into leaving her domestic abuser and um, and trying to restore her relationship with her children through this whole process, um, she has become just. Uh, she's a lobbyist in every state and she uh, luckily has brought along many celebrities who have been um, victims of domestic violence and they've taken up her cause which is to get laws like Caden's law which just passed in I believe California um, their laws against coercive control uh, passed in multiple states and she does not expect to be done until it is in every state in the United States so uh 10 in the past two years so if That's we're looking huge. at all 50 that's, that's yeah. actually pretty good yeah, if yeah we're looking at all 50 then it, it seems like things years. take forever mm-hmm. in the judicial system so mm-hmm. that seems actually pretty good yeah sadly I don't know if this is how she selects the states but I have noticed something happens and then shortly afterwards the laws are passed but what it appears to me is that um like something has will, to be in the news children will be murdered Um, children mothers will be murdered and and it will be in a situation where the courts could have intervened but they chose not to because they said well nothing illegal is going on Mm -hmm. Um, and then you know we'll see a couple months later that they passed a coercive control law in that state and I'm like oh okay and so they ride the backs of dead women and children to save future yeah so there's a woman that I follow in um, San Francisco and she's actually her son and my girlfriend's son in San Francisco, they went to the same school and so forth. The little boy was murdered mm. by his dad, this strange dad. Yeah. And, um, to get at the mom basically the was mom. why probably yeah. or he no. was sort murder, of, yeah. suicide, yeah, murder, suicide, murder, suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh. Um, if, if oh, is this the one in California? Was in San Francisco. Te- yeah. The teenage boy. No, he was, was he a psychiatrist. No. Okay. He was about, I think eight years old, eight or nine mm. years old. And, um, so she started a nonprofit called Pierce. His name was Pierce. Pierce's mm. Pledge, mm-hmm. and basically trying to get, um, um, from what I understand, and I'm probably misspeaking, so I should probably I'll, I'll find out more information. But she gets um, talks to like um, gun stores that they will hold guns mm-hmm. out of um, domestic abusers pro- uh, out of the out of the house mm-hmm. because they know that once it's in the house you just don't know especially Mm -hmm. when the parents are estranged and he gets to have you know Mm -hmm. time with the child alone and then something like this happens and um and I think she's she's been going all over the country and I I she's only got like a handful or maybe 10 um Mm -hmm. places where they're able to do it but it's they need to get those guns out of yeah I mean with guns um The night I decided that I was going to leave my abuser, I was actually, um, so I I think maybe I've told you this, Amy, but I was an atheist my whole life. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents were Christian. They actually went to Beaverton Foursquare when I was a kid. I was christened. Um, Pastor Ron, who I guess was one of their like most Mm -hmm. favorite pastors, um, wrote (laughs) me my letter during my christening that, you know, when I was 12 to be baptized and this and that. So um, faith was certainly introduced to me, Mm -hmm. but I experienced a lot of things in my life that made me do what a lot of philosophers do, where I was like, if there was a God, Mm -hmm. there is no way this would have ever happened to me. Um, And it just destroyed my ability to connect with um, Jesus. And I was told after I was saved that um, that part of the reason a lot of the bad things that really pushed me to being saved were happening is because the, de- the devil comes for you hard when, when you're going after Jesus. And um, I was... 
Really? Yeah. yeah that that I, when you're I've living when you're living that, closer yeah. to Jesus, mm-hmm. the devil really your life comes becomes at you. harder. Mm-hmm. I've heard while. that for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. yeah, for a little while. I mean, my my pastor when I was a new Christian, I kept telling him, "I'm praying for faith," and he's like, "Stop!" <laughs> he's like, "If you pray for faith, God is going to test your faith. <laughs> like, stop doing that." I'm like, "Okay." So like, you have to navigate Christianity mm-hmm. and Jesus, and and you have to. You have to get to know Jesus to navigate Christianity. And when I was first introduced to Jesus, it was through a voice in my head where I did not know what was happening, but I knew that I didn't have a choice in the matter. I had to listen. And so um, my uh, my abuser um, loves guns and is, is very trained with uh, weapons and um he had set up this kind of like level of paranoia inside of our home where he literally carried a gun on him every second of every day. And when we ate dinner, the gun sat on the dinner table next to him. So, so that was just an implicit threat that was present in my life all the time that reminded me to behave. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at some point he had accused me of having multiple affairs and letting people get into our alarm system and all very crazy stuff. Um, so he then eventually changed our alarm system code so that I couldn't come into my own house. I mean, I had a key to it, but I couldn't turn the alarm off without, I had to call him and ask him to let me in when I would come home from work. And so, yeah. Oh, geez. Um, and then he would set the alarm to instant, like not give the three seconds or whatever. Mm-hmm. So if he didn't pick up the phone to turn the alarm off so that I could come inside, I would eventually go and open the door and the alarm would instantly go off and then I'd stand there and wait for him to turn it off because I'm like, okay, now he knows I'm here because the alarm's going crazy. Um, And shortly before I left, he would appear when I would do this. He stopped answering the phone when I would call and I would open the door and the alarm would go off like crazy and he would appear at the top of our stairs. We lived in a split level house pointing a gun at me. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Like you were an intruder. Like I was an intruder. And that was his excuse. And and I was like, this man, well, actually... The first time, he kind of lowered the gun pretty rapidly. Second time, lowered the gun pretty la- rapidly. The third time, I looked in his eyes, and he looked like a snake to me, which actually, if you read about mm-hmm. narcissist serpent eyes or whatever, uh-huh. like it's a clinical thing that their eyes actually change into these like weird oh. serpent eyes. But anyways, his eyes looked like a snake to me, and I was like, he did not lower the gun. He kept pointing it at me. And I closed the door, and I just sat on the steps of our home. And I was like holy cow, like he's going to kill me. And he's going to say that he... There's self-defense. Or, well, and, or well actually, and it's crazy because that actually isn't what popped into my head. What popped in my head was Oscar Pistorius. A name oh, I was yeah. not, a name I was not I had, familiar with. I thought of that. I that was the. That I was, was not familiar with that name. I didn't know that story. I knew nothing about it. Okay, so I recognize the name, but I can't. The Blade exactly Runner, remember. the Olympic remember. Blade Runner oh, in Australia. Shot, yeah, yeah, in Australia, he shot That's his right. girlfriend. Mm-hmm through the door of their bathroom multiple times and stated that he thought she was an intruder. And then it was found out afterwards that he was like physically aggressive with her all the time. It wasn't Mm -hmm. the first time he shot a gun with her, all these different things. And he ended up being convicted of murder. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had that name popped into my head and I immediately Googled it on my phone. I'm like, what the heck? Oh, that's So I immediately Googled it and I read this story as I'm sitting on the steps of my house when my abuser was inside with a gun. And I was like, oh my God, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And like, you're, this is it. So that night, um, I don't remember, we had fights about things all the time, but like we were not happy with each other that night. Uh, And I was laying in bed and he was laying in bed with his back to me and halfway through the night he rolled over and he had his gun in his hand and his finger on the trigger and he was pointing the gun at my head, dead asleep snoring. (laughs) Dead asleep snoring, pointing the gun at my head. And I was just sitting there staring down the barrel of this oh gun, God. like, what? What if he was fake snoring? No, he I was mean, asleep. Okay. I mean, I yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wouldn't put yeah. it past right, him, right. but like, I oh, do. I, yeah. Like yeah, I said, it was my go. business to know this yeah, man. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I laid there and I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do because he could accidentally pull the trigger. But right. then if I wake him up, maybe me waking him up will start right. him into Absolutely. pulling the trigger. Like, how do I survive this? So I slunk off of our bed. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that's what I would do. That's what I was thinking too. <laughs> like. And I like got down on the floor and I crawled. And I opened the door and I let myself out of the room, but I reached back in and I locked it because I had this like idea mm. that like maybe our kid would walk in the room or like whatever in the middle of the night and he'd accidentally shoot 
whatever. So mm-hmm. I locked the door so that no one could get back into the bedroom. Um, and I went and sat on the couch at my house and I just sat there and all of a sudden, same voice mm-hmm. that gave me Oscar Pistorius mm-hmm. said to me, do not sleep another night in this house or you will not survive. Oh my God. Not one more night. Yeah. And I'm like, God, (laughs) God. Okay. All right. I hear, I got the message. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I panicked a lot. I'm like, how am I going to get out of this? Um, he had, trackers on my phone he had passwords to my everything he uh, I didn't have a bank account that was solely mine like I had no idea how I was going to get out of this situation um and I went to work I, you know at like six o'clock in the morning I started getting ready I went to work and like a little while through my work day a friend I hadn't spoken to in a really long time sent me a text message she was having a hard day and I don't remember exactly what she said but she was just like I hate everybody or something <laughs> like that and I was like hi um can I tell you something I've never told anyone before yeah. <laughs> and she was like yeah and I uh texted her I believe my exact words were I'm not safe I need help that is so brave and good. Oh, my gosh. And um, she asked me if my cell phone was secure. Um, mm-hmm. This person has, in a medical field, has some experience with women who are victims. Um, and she asked me if my cell phone was secure, and I said I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And she said, get on a secure phone and call me. So I got on, a, I got on my, my work phone, mm-hmm. and I, I called her from the switchboard. And I gave her a very, very brief, um, like, I'm in danger, gun violence, this and that, but like not a story. Mm-hmm. And she gave me an address and she said, I will meet you here at eight o'clock tonight. This house is available to you for eight weeks um, oh and you can just come live here. And, and it, the best part about it was it was a private home and it was a beautiful home mm-hmm. and it was fully stocked with anything anyone would need and had a bath and a beautiful guest room and all those things. So I didn't have to go to like a shelter, right. shelter you know, did you bring your daughter? No, that was going to be my no. question. Um, at the time that I left and there were a lot of things going on with my daughter. Uh, but I, I went home from work, uh, and I knew that my abuser wouldn't be home for about two or three hours. So I, I went home from work and I got black garbage bags that you would put like leaves and things like that mm-hmm. in. And I just started dumping everything that I could possibly think of into it, like my social security card. Um, and well, actually, no, I didn't get my social security card. I thought I did because there was oh, a file sure. that I thought was going to have it in right. it. And it was not there. But like records mm-hmm. that I that were there was like a file cabinet and I just started taking things and throwing them into a bag and then I just took like all the clothes that I could Mm -hmm. into a bag and I ended up with like two black garbage bags and a suitcase and a couple things um and I knew that I couldn't pull those out of because he watched on camera 24 hours a day so we had cameras inside our house and outside our house Jesus yeah um and he watched them he had like the alerts that would go off anytime they moved and he would open them and watch them I mean I know because we'd be sitting on the couch watching tv and the cameras would be going off and he'd just be watching them all the time and so I knew that I couldn't put the bags in my car until Mm -hmm. like I was actually driving away Mm -hmm. because if he saw me out there putting bags in the car he was going to come straight home and I was going to be in trouble so I waited um, until shortly before I knew he was going to be home because I didn't want to leave my daughter alone and I went into her room and I just said to her that, I mean, she'd seen some things. Mm-hmm. And I said to her that the fighting um, between her, her dad and I was not going to stop if I didn't leave and that I was leaving. And I asked her if she wanted to come with me. Um, and she said no. And I had had an experience before where I had clued um, uh, my child in on something and I didn't act rapidly and... Um, my ex was informed mm-hmm. um, and so at that moment I grabbed my bags and I left and that was that so he was in his car so there was he wasn't necessarily keeping an eye on the video and all that sort of stuff probably not because he was probably on his way home mm-hmm. um, so he yeah and uh, well and I got everything into my car and I was out of there within like probably five or six minutes I mean my sister wrote this horribly heartbreaking story and she said my my sister worked her entire life to build this home for her family and she walked away from it in less than five minutes Mm -hmm. and that was that and it was that was that I lost everything I lost everything 
Um, yeah, that's tough. The <laughs> next morning after I left, the first thing that he did was go to our joint business bank account and empty it. Um, well, we still had outstanding debts for that business, and I ended up working and paying off those outstanding debts. Um, so I say I lost everything, but you know what? I didn't. I lost stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I lost and you a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like not only alive, but like really living. I'm yeah. So, I'm so That's living. A good way to say like it. I'm yeah. so living. And um, it's so weird. I, I said to my attorney the other day because she apologized to me and she said, I don't know what happened with your case. Like I wanted to do so much better for you. And she said to me that um, she said, my case is the saddest case that she's ever been involved in. Mm-hmm. Not that that means it's the saddest case that's ever existed, but for her, she, I don't think feels like she did a great job for me because I did lose so much stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I told her <laughs> and I meant it. Um, I am estranged from people in my life that mean more to me than my own breath. And I lost all of my belongings and um, I have had to rebuild my life from the ground up, and I'm happier than I've ever been before. <laughs> like, I'm happier than I've ever mm-hmm. been before. No one yells at me, no one hits me. If I want to read a book, I read a book. If I want to watch a TV program, I watch TV Making program. your own decisions. Yeah. If oh I want to take a nap, I used to get mm-hmm. in trouble for taking naps when I was tired. <laughs> like, you know, like it was like, all you do is sleep, and I'm like, actually, I don't. I never sleep, like, what are you talking about? Um, I take a bath when I want to take a bath. I go on a walk when I want to go on a walk. And like when I talked about boundaries earlier, like I only have people in my life who want good for me mm-hmm. and are good to me. Right. And that receive the good that I give as a gift. And they deserve it. Yes, they deserve it. Yeah, and they don't. Go. Like I remember I used to give gifts in my former relationship and it was always like why it wasn't good enough. Like, no matter how hard I worked, how much money I spent, how much I'd planned and like squirreled away. And I had this like under the bed for, you know, months waiting to give this gift because I finally got a good gift. And it was still every Christmas morning, like, this is it. And I'm like, oh, gut punch. And now it's like I'm dating a guy who I literally gave a picture of us for Christmas. And he's like love it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, and because you're the gift. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. He's I mean, so, and, and he's not the reason my life yeah. is so much yeah. better. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many reasons my life is so much better, but, um, yeah, I'm with someone who's just, yeah, Amy, I said to you earlier, predictable. Mm-hmm. And you said mm-hmm. in a good way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah yep. And yeah. all the good ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most, the most amazing trait of the person that I am dating is his patience. Mm. so not only is he a man of extreme integrity and character um but his patience is just he just he rides it out you know and he's not a super romantic kind of guy um he like romantic things happen between us because (laughs) there's romance but like it just happens because we share in those moments together but he's not like the kind of person that's going to like write me the roses or red poem and like you know whatever but um i remember he he says things occasionally that i'm like you're so you're so wise and you're so good and i remember i said to him thank you for being patient with me because there were times where i would like retract from our relationship when things were going good it's too good it's too good mm-hmm. <laughs> what's going to happen and i'd just be like ah, and kind of like you know, I don't know if if we really like each other. Do you like me? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Just such a weird, like, 12-year-old girl insecurity type of thing would happen or whatever. And then a couple of days later when my hormone cycle would change and I'd get out of the luteal phase and ovulation was coming and I'd have to be like, okay, that was weird. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for acting a little strange. I, like, I was pre-egg. <laughs> but, um, and I said... Could I call it pre-o. Pre-off. Yeah. <laughs> pre-off. All right, you guys, our microphones are starting to get fried. We're going to cut it here, and please come back next week to hear part two. Hey, guys, just a reminder, this podcast is presented solely for entertainment and educational purposes. We are just friends, me, Amy, and Heather. 
We're not qualified professionals. This is not intended to replace any professional physician, doctor, medical advice, um, or what have you. We are just friends talking about our experiences and just want to make sure that you take the healthy route and be safe and happy. Love you. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We really appreciate you listening to us, and we look forward to hanging out with you next Wednesday. Please join us. And in the meantime, please follow us on Instagram at The Real Exes Portland. Also, we would love to hear from you and hear some of your juicy stories. You can email us your stories at rxop.yourstory.com at gmail.com. Until next week. Bye. Bye.